This podcast could potentially have adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly the possibility of sexual content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, Drinking With Authors fans. We have some pretty big news from your host here, Erica Lance. We are moving to change the format of the show to be one episode. So there's a few episodes that record the old way that we're doing the new way. And that's what you're listening to. So thank you. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And we love having you as fans. On to the show. Welcome to Drinking with Authors. I am your host, Erica Lance. My co-host today is the amazing and epic hair, epic hair today, Danielle Orzino. And our guest today is Ali Sekatukulu. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, very close. <laughs> Do it again for us. It's a hard name. Avi uh, Sekatukulu. It's a beautiful name is what it is. And yeah. then I have it and then I get tongue-tied and it's fabulous. So welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what we're drinking today. So I decided to um, get my uh, favorite little wine out here. Well, my favorite white wine, which is the Pacific Rim Sweet Riesling, Ooh. because it has a dragon and that's that's for Danielle. So it is very good nice. and I'm drinking it in a cup my um, daughter gave me that says best fucking Mima. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love that so much. Okay. So Danielle, what are you drinking today? I think we're on the dragon theme because I got my Maleficent cup and it kind of matches the label a little bit of yours. And I'm drinking my chai latte. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Okay. And I, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a flavored seltzer um, in my fabulous uh, cocktail glass. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Nice. Thank you. (laughs) So for those who may not know your writing, what do you write? So I am um, a clinical psychoanalyst, and that means that I talk with people as part of my everyday, and I write on topics that come to me from my clinical work, and I focus on thinking about gender, sexuality, um, race, and trauma. Um, Interesting. Wow. What got you started actually doing writing on this topic, though? Because you are in a field that has a lot of heaviness to it, so or can have a lot of heaviness to it. Um, so what got you started writing? Um, it's a really great question. I started writing thinking that I wanted to express things, but coming to realize that I wrote in order to understand and work on things that... Um, that were preoccupying me about my work, about how to think about some of the matters that I see in the clinic. Um, so I joined actually a writing group, and that's how I started. And now I, I run a writing group too. So it's it's kind of a that's great big journey. Wow! What what made you just start to run a writing group? I I had been very fortunate as a as a clinician, like many clinicians don't write. Um, and I had been very fortunate to have been in a writing group and I was in the company of other writers and realized how important that was to be able to move forward with one's process. And I learned so much there and so much was given to me. I came to realize, like, I don't know how people write in my field who have not been in this kind of experience. So I felt like I wanted to offer that possibility 
for other people um, who are working on their own process clinicians. I, I think that's great because I think writers groups, well, the right writers groups, I should say, mm -hmm. um, because some are, you can get into interesting ones. And I always preface with find one that suits you because some end up being just like critique groups where people who get way too excited about trolling people in groups because they think they're better start writing groups. But a lot of them are great because um, I think a lot of books uh, that are nonfiction books can be really, really dry mm. if they you don't have people who, who actually, because you regardless of what kind of book it is, you're telling a story, unless it's an instruction manual on how to build a carburetor and something, you are telling a story. So you have to tell the story in a way that um, people can um, relate to it and understand it. And even if it's not their own experience, they have to be able to get in the mindset of the, the people in, I don't want to say necessarily characters, but the people the story is about or the situations the story is about. And I, I've read a lot because I used to be in a very corporate field and I've read a lot of books that people are like, this is a great book on management. And then I've read it and I'm like, this reads like stereo instructions. Why do you think this is a great <laughs> So I think that's fantastic. So this, the, the book on, um, trauma. So this is a very heavy topic, right? And it's about consent. Mm -hmm. Did you, is it just from your interactions with people or did you do further research? Like when you started to go down this, how much, how much of it was research versus how much of it was interaction with your, your patients and people you talked to? I mean, to some degree, there's kind of like it's hard to tell what the boundary between the two is because things happen in the clinic that then preoccupy you for the rest of your day, and things happen in the rest of your day that somehow pop up in your mind during a clinical moment, and they're usually connected. Uh, so it's very hard to kind of like draw hard lines. Uh, but I would say I, I, I definitely use some clinical examples uh, in this book um, in sexuality beyond consent. And have also done research, like in terms of the topics. But paradoxically, I have a third genre of um, contribution to that book, and that is my own obsession, if not preoccupation, with a play. Um, and I talk a lot about the play, about how I became really fixated on it. Um, so there are almost like these three tributaries that kind of like convene into like a large stream. Well, that's fair. What is the play? Uh, it's Jeremy O'Harris's slave play. Are either of you familiar with it? No. Are you, Danielle? I, I just heard it on a different podcast, so I'm curious to hear her point of view on it. Somebody was just talking about it. Okay. Tell us a little bit, without giving away the book, tell us a little bit about the play for those that maybe don't know the play, like mm. myself. Sure, sure. And Danielle, I'm curious, like, based on what you've heard, how you and I might also jump into that together. Um, the play is written by a Black queer. He, he wrote this when he was very young. He's still very young, but he was below 30 when he wrote it. He wrote it as part of, uh, I think, one of his writing requirements when he was doing his training. Um, and it's it's a really uh, startling, surprising, disturbing, upsetting, exciting, difficult, difficult play. 
Um, and it's, it negotiates kind of like in very broad strokes, I would say it's about like the erotics of racism and about interracial relationships and questions of both excitement and accountability and participation, uh, but a kind of participation that is not something that one thinks they are, they have control over, but happens, I would say, and this is part of why it's in this book that's called Sexuality Beyond Consent, that happens at the limits of one's consent, which is not the same thing as to say it happens against one's consent or without consent, but really at the border of things that we can consent or dissent from. No, that mm-hmm. makes, I'm, I'm now I'm very interested to see it. I'm making a note right now because I do want to investigate that further. I think it's very interesting when, when we're talking about consent, because I came from the HR field, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So that's my corporate HR is my background. And one of the things that we had to do was do um, training for people on consent Mm-hmm. to understand it. And there was this little video and it was made by a company in, I want to say the UK and it's called consent T like T E A. Yeah. I've seen Are you familiar with it. Yeah. And it was so interesting to me because when you talk about trying to educate certain groups of people, obviously need certain different educations on consent But I found like when I was trying to educate people in some of the very boring ways people have put um, consent into education, right, and trying to understand it is that particular thing. It has stuck with me for years now because I was like, this is one of the best descriptions of consent that I've ever seen, you know, and what is consent and what is not consent in a level that people um, understand. Do you do a lot of education on the topics in your book? I don't. Uh, I would say that um, this is kind of a consent 201 or 301 or perhaps 401 kind of book uh, that takes some things as a given, kind of like the the gains of the feminist movement, the conversations of how to kind of like setting boundaries, what it means to respect them. And it, it starts with that as a as a given, which it very much it's not something to be necessarily assumed in today's world, um, but it takes that as its starting point. And because it unfolds not in the domain of the corporate realm, but in the domain of really intimate relationships, including relationships, interpersonal relationships, close relationships, sexual relationships, but also in the, our relationship with art, um, it it takes up a different kind of question, which is not so much how do we protect ourselves from the other person's violation or communicate well our boundaries, but what does it mean to put oneself in situations with others where we risk something with each other rather than shield ourselves from something? Um, Hence, yeah, you're going to say something. Well, Daniela looked like she was going to say something. No, I'm trying to, um, I guess, rationalize or, or bring it together because it sounds and I maybe I'm wrong it sounds like you're also asking what is what it is to consent but what is it to consent to risk in the in, from an emotional and physical standpoint just to have that interpersonal connection with another human that but I would take it even a step further to say that every time you step into an intimate encounter with somebody 
Um, and I, I intimate, I don't mean euphemism. Uh, this is not a euphemism for sex. I talk about right. other kinds of intimacies. Um, Just emotional. Yeah. And exposures. Yeah. That there's a, a risk that's built into that encounter because you don't know what the other person will bring, nor mm-hmm. how what the other person will bring will impact you. This is one of the issues around affirmative consent. And one of my critiques of affirmative consent that that mm-hmm. affirmative consent imagines subjects that know ahead of time how they will react or how they will feel, or that you set a boundary and hopefully the other person respects it and then that guarantees something. But what does it really guarantee? Um, You may feel, while we usually talk about consent as an interpersonal matter in the sense of I convey my limits to you, you respect them or don't respect them, and then we have a sense of whether you violated or respected my consent, one of the this is the way in which the book is a 301 of consent. I, I try to talk about how consent is also about what we allow ourselves to be exposed to in the encounter with the other and in the encounter with art. Like you go to see a play, if you're somebody who doesn't read reviews, like I don't, um, don't quite know what you're getting into, what it will touch in you, what it will put in motion, how it might make you come alive or come into something traumatic or um, become excited, become excited about something that frightens you. These are not things that you can consent to ahead of time. Um, but they're also not violations. It's not like, that's, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm, you may feel that's a specific line of delineation yeah. between that. Cause I think it sounds like we can also get to a point of wanting to know everything that's going to happen and almost wash it to where it's it's too we know we're getting a good thing or we know this is exactly what's going to happen it almost takes the joy out of the unknown or yes. something bad might happen out of it but that bad might lead to something good or might lead to a breakthrough so it it feels like we still need some kind of um unknown expectation you know we can't always expect it's going to go a to b yeah yeah that's right that's right so I introduce a different kind of consent that i call limit consent to talk about what it's like to be consenting to something at the limit of what you can know about yourself, about the other, and about what you can bear. Um, so the book is not preoccupied so much with violations, which of course are also a consideration, just not my book's focus. Um, mm-hmm. It's concerned more about what kinds of different experiences can arise in when we chafe against a limit. Um, it's very interesting because one of the things um, that I don't think it's talked about really enough is and kind of you talked about the emotions of in art and things is that you know people you know you always hear people want to be happy want to be happy all the time right and um, I think that if you were happy all the time you wouldn't actually be happy all the time Mm -hmm. because you don't have that contrasting Mm -hmm. situation but then how do you deal with when you hit that contrasting situation it's kind of like in a game if you're given unlimited lives or unlimited play and stuff like that there's literally no challenge in it whatsoever because you you what is what is the risk there's no risk in having that happen and it's so it's when you guys were talking about that just now that made me think of that because 
you know, I've always found, oh, you, you know, I have this cheat code for this. And I'm like, yeah, but then this game is not fun to play anymore. Yeah. To experience it. Yeah. And see how it would cause you to grow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also interesting to the way you're framing it, um, Erica, because there's something about this notion of being safe or having good experiences that is that is entirely unrealistic. This is not how our humanity also includes experiences that have to do with anguish and with pain and with puzzlement or wonderment that is not necessarily about pleasure or um, feeling understood or seen. Um, this is one of the reasons why I became so preoccupied with this play that in a way bombards you with a series of scenes and experiences and recapitulations of things that we see happening in our everyday life around race and around sexuality, but doesn't give you a moment to recover. It's it's a pummeling. This play is a pummeling of sorts. And it creates a certain kind of emotional and psychic environment for the emergence of things that we don't usually associate with um, safety, with um, the respect of one's boundaries, other things can happen in that space, which are no less important than, than those experiences that we usually pursue through affirmative consent. Was writing this book cathartic for you in a way for all of this stuff that was sort of swirling around in your mind? To the contrary, it was a torture. Oh, <laughs> writing really? Mm-hmm. Really? Hey, listeners, you know me, Eric Lance. You're just listening to me in the podcast that you have. But guess what? I'm doing something new. Yeah, she's joining me, Mark Muncy, the author of the Erie, Florida book series in Erie, Appalachia. And we are hosting a new podcast called Erie Travels. Woo-woo, Erie Travels, which covers things like ghosts, cryptids, weird stuff, UFOs, men in black, all kinds of fun things that people talk about and I'm sure you've discussed with friends. Yep, and you can listen to us on your favorite podcast platform of choice or find us at eerietravels.com and join in the fun and all the spooky goodness. And of course, Mark, what do we always say? We'll see you on the other side. You know, we've talked to a lot of authors that have written nonfiction books and a lot of them have written them around, you know, death or loss or different Mm -hmm. topics. And pretty much one for one, Danielle, correct me. They've all gone, oh, this was very cathartic to write this book. This Mm -hmm. was better. And and so so you've got me riveted. Tell me why this was not that. Oh, that's so interesting. I would not, I would have thought that feeling tortured by writing would have been a a very common experience for authors. So I'm I'm very interested in what you're saying. Um, I mean, look, like I work with a, with a series of ideas in this book, which, which I bring myself to, I'm not just speaking as somebody who observes the world, but also as somebody who participates in the world and who puts herself on the line in that participation. And that is a particular kind of, uh, there's a particular kind of um, not just tension, but also anguish in observing oneself, the way that one contemplates one's experience in, in the aftermath of that experience. 
and then trying to not necessarily to make sense of it, which is one way to relate to experience, but to to throw yourself into it again and again and again. So one of the ways in which this play um, captured me was that I, I saw it, I thought about it, and then I saw it again, and I saw it again, and I started following it around in different productions across state lines, um, reading about whatever I could find about it, reading the, the, the script, comparing the script across different productions. So I would say that in some ways I fell ill with a play. Um, wow. Did you Have you met the playwright? I have. So at what point in the journey did you actually, did you reach out to him? How did that work? It's a very, it's, it's very sweet to be asked that. It's not a question I've been asked before. Um, I wrote something that I published about the play very, very early on in this journey that I've been describing of mine. When the play was in its um, first Broadway production, I published something in online that the playwright happened to read and tweeted about and really liked. So we had like some very brief exchange on kind of like in the social media, the social um, um, media domain. Um, but then I went to the closing of the play and met him in person. Uh, and it was it was a really, it felt like a really meaningful encounter for me, for sure, because he had seemed to me and from, from what he said also to other people in other contexts and their public conversations, there was something about what I wrote that really spoke to him. Um, so when we met, he was, he seemed very happy to meet me. And I was certainly very happy to meet the person who had created this play that I became, become so, um, um, invaded by um and haunted by um and kind of like we hugged each other and then he he wrote a very nice dedication on my playbill um and that has really stayed with me uh, that has been an important moment of course the 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 creator of a piece of art is never the arbiter of what the art is about but there's something about seeing somebody who has created a thing that has excited you and captured you who feel in turn stimulated and interested in what you have to say that creates a, a loop or, or rather a spiral that keeps going. Uh, and it's certainly an experience that I had. Well, and so that's going to cause me to ask you, have you now had that sort of reversed with um, people who've read your book or fans of your book? So, because as, as authors and as artists and creators, you know, we put our work out there. And a lot of times, um, I would say, I would actually say the majority of time, you don't know the impact that your work is having on people, yeah. right? Because it's out there and not everybody necessarily writes a review or reaches out to the author or like any number mm -hmm. of comes to see you at a show. Um, some people do, but a lot of times you, you're having a quiet impact on the mm -hmm. audience, right? Um, and it could be to your, what you brought up in the first half, like a, it could be a good impact or it could be, uh, you've triggered them or you've, you know, created other emotions within them, but you've impacted them somehow. So now I'm curious now that you've released this book, um, what has that been like for you as far as your fans coming towards you and the impact that the book has had on them? I've had a very, um, 
interesting and curious experience. I didn't expect it, even though in retrospect, it makes sense with three different readers who have in different manners expressed to me both um, directly and also publicly. So I'm not sharing something that has, that is not, that I'm not at liberty to share, mm-hmm. that they have felt quite undone by the book. Uh, one of them having had kind of like a real crisis of sorts, um, which they they talked about very explicitly to me. Another one feeling actually preparing for a podcast and feeling that they had to pause after having completed my book and actually postponed the recording of the podcast because they felt so unsettled in a way that both upset and excited them about it. Um, so I was wondering, I don't know if, this is something you do, but, and I was not intending to do this, but as you're asking me this question, Erica, there's a segment of my book that I might read from to speak to some of what you're asking about. Absolutely. If you want to go ahead. Okay. Yeah. This is, this comes very early on in the book and it kind of charts, it addresses the reader and charts what I am hoping for in the encounter between the reader and myself. And this is from the end of the introduction. Um, I was drawn to writing this book as my way of coping with the strain of watching slave play, a play that overwhelmed and startled me. I wrote this book because I couldn't look away, because I wanted to, or more precisely, because I needed to forge a relationship with the aesthetic experience that that play roused in me. The risk of reading this book, no less than the risk of writing it, is to experience what happens when we expose ourselves to something unknown, not knowing where it will take us. I wrote this book for you, not the plural you, but the singular you. You can read it for its ideas, and I hope you will. But this is not only a book about ideas. It is a book that wants to give you an experience. Writing this way is a risk, and it has required a great vulnerability of me. It has taken me to places I did not expect to go to places that scare me. And more than once I found myself before something much bigger than me towering over me. I have written this book so that you can follow me there. Oh, wow. This is very impactful. Thank you. Um, I think, you know, when you, you talk about this, having been a play in creating this, what has since then, and since getting the writing done, because you mentioned earlier, I think that writing can the completion of a book for some people can be cathartic. Going through the process of writing a book can be yeah. overwhelming and arduous, and we can many other adjectives we can add to that for various writers. But I think getting to the end of it, did you feel a little bit of a sense of I don't want to say necessarily closure, but that you that you encapsulated what you needed to for that chapter of your life. Um, what an interesting question! You you will perhaps hear in the background that I'm not somebody who's given to catharsis and closures uh, as as a human being. It's not my style. Um, but in this book, you know, I was actually writing this book for it, as I said, torturesome, but also inc- it, it felt like an incredibly int- intimate experience with myself. Um, At times it felt like I was writing in a drunken state, even though I wasn't physically drunk. Um, 
many authors have that experience of feeling like they go into a state and you emerge out of it and you feel like you've written the best thing and then you read it and you're like, yeah, it's not really the best thing. It's, it's an okay yeah. thing. <laughs> There's sometimes um, we definitely write and think, oh my gosh, we just put the best words ever put on paper. And then you read them the next morning and you're like, no, I'm just, I'm the hell I think we just, exactly. You're like, replace the whole thing. Uh-huh. Like when you when you said Danielle, what what the hell was I thinking? Like sometimes you're like, this doesn't even make sense. <laughs> you know, it only made sense from within that state. But when I finished the book, I, f- I I felt really kind of crestfallen because it felt to me like the whole process that I had been not just engaged in in a contemplative way, but participating in had come to an end. And now I would have to put the book out there as I was contracted to do and as I wanted to do. I did want the book out there. But that really marked the end of a process that was between me and my book. And a really, really smart um, friend of mine who is herself an author said to me something that has really stayed with me. She said to me, once you put your, your book out there, it's no longer yours. Um, and that felt very wise that once it was out there, I would have to allow people to do with the book whatever they would do with the book um, and that they would pick up on things that I didn't intend or might not even want to be read that way and do with them what they will. So for me, there was a process of letting go of the book so that I could decide that the book that I wrote and the book that is out there may be the same object, the same material, but it does not belong to me anymore. No, and and that's true. Your friend is very, very wise because um, we talk a lot on this podcast and it it's slightly different for the type of book you've written, but um, people will tend to fall in love with characters or scenes that were not, um, or places in your book that were not what you thought of as a major thing. Like it's just a little whatever plot device or whatever to to do that. And so you never know what will mean the difference to other people. And you have to trust that they find and use it for what they need to find and use it for. Because if you try to argue with them that, no, Lenny is not the best character, you know, you're like, you know, even if you just used him for whatever, they, the Lenny is the best character in the world and they're modeling their life after Lenny and they think Lenny is the best thing in the entire universe, which is... a it is a very weird thing, though, isn't it? That when you put it out there and then it's not, it's not yours. Any more control over. It's not yours. You have to have, I think, at least what I have found is that you have to be, to the extent that one can, prepared for the fact that you're giving up your sovereignty over your work. Uh, and that others, it's not that just that they will do with it what they will they should do with it what they will. And you put it out into the world, not to exercise the will over others, but to, to see what it will inspire in them. And that can only be discovered after the fact. Very true. Have you read your reviews? Um, I've read some. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How was that for you? Uh, I want to say that because as far as I kind of separated myself, like my own personal process from how that the impact that it's having in the world. Um, it's been interesting. I found it very interesting. Like people have picked up on things that on some of the things that I think are 
key in this book. And they have also dropped what, what I eventually came to think the, the book is all about, um, which is which is interesting and humbling. Um, I've been fortunate in that my book has gotten engaged. Like a lot of people have been reading sexuality beyond consent in my field and become interested and has also leaked outside the field in ways that feel gratifying to me. Um, but it's also early. I don't know what you find with writing and authors and publishing. You know, my book has been out for maybe like four months. I think it's going to take some time to have a sense of how it's sitting, what it's doing. I think it's a roller coaster, honestly. Mm -hmm. I think you have highs and lows when you release a book. There's a lot of, when you first release it, um, there's your own excitement and sort of whatever uh, anticipation you have for what's going to occur with it. And, you know, um, even if your publisher prepares you, I don't know that a lot of people, you know, there was a, a tweet a little while ago from a woman who had done a book signing and she was like, only two people showed up for my book signing. And then Neil Gaiman replied and said, well, me and Terry Pratchett did a book signing and nobody showed up. You know, it's, I, I think we have our own expectations. And then you, you start to see it. And then how does your book get out? Because it's one thing to talk about it, have it in your field and stuff like that. But it comes up on Google searches and it comes up for people. And then there's the word of mouth of people talking about it. So I think it's sort of this ride you have to go on. And you never know when you're going to get to the top peaks of that ride and versus the lowest lows of that particular ride. And there'll be times you might think, oh, it's over for the most part and it's just there. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, there's this renewed interest in it that happens. So I I, I think um, it can be very interesting. And it, it also leads me to my next question about, are you writing anything else now since... I am, but can I can I pause for a moment? Can I stay yeah. with what you were just saying? Because it reminded me like one of one of my favorite stories about, about the unexpectedness of where your book ends up is the following, and I actually have not talked about this before, um, which is that a colleague of mine who with whom I was going to be in conversation about the book, he and I were speaking about it, and he it was just as the book was launching. And he was telling me that he was preparing for our conversation. So he had the book out and his yoga teacher came and to have a yoga session. And he walked in and he looked at the book and he said, um, oh, wow, like everybody's talking about that book. And that was, I was like, what? Like, no, I don't even think that anybody outside psychoanalysis would have even heard of this book. And there was something, he, he he actually said some things to my colleague that made it clear that he was not just being polite, but he, there actually was some engagement. That really startled me. Like, I would have never expected somebody who is in another field, let alone like a yoga teacher who might not necessarily be interested in like the heavy psychoanalytic theory and queer of color critique that I engage in this book um, to have been looking forward to it. Um, so that that was like really a delight. Um, I think that there's an underestimation of how much lack of um, correct literature and things like that are on certain topics that people do want to know more about and it impacts them because mm -hmm. especially right now in a time where, you know, 
if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I would have said we were in one of our darkest times in relation mm-hmm. to race and, you know, a renewed dark time, I should say. We're not in our dark, there's time, but like there, there was a lot racially and for, um, you know, LGBTQ lifestyles and stuff like that. And then I feel personally like every day there's mm-hmm. something else. And I'm like, am I in like the toilet zone? Like what is happening? How are we going 